Today I'm talking with Mauro Porcelli, a retired firefighter from Orlando Fire Department. He did 25 years in the fire service. Actually, he began his career with Marion County Fire Rescue and worked his way up through the ranks, becoming the youngest district commander in the state of Florida at that time. Um, highly decorated, well-respected, been there, done that. This is a fireman's fireman, and he's also the author of the book, Surviving the Firehouse. Um, definitely an awesome read. And uh, we'll get into the book, but um, one thing that, that I like to do in the very beginning of interviews is kind of get a feeling for who you are, get some of your background, and um, really, really find out like who your influences were growing up. And um, so let's start off with uh, how you ended up in the fire service. I appreciate you, Dave, having me on. Uh, thanks a lot for, for this opportunity and you know, taking your time with me. I really do appreciate that. Now, I started back in the fire department back in uh, 1988. I was born and raised in the Bronx in uh, New York City and uh, grew up there. And then we moved down to, uh, we moved down to Florida. And uh, I always knew that I did not want to be, uh, you know, do something in a factory or I did not want to sit behind a desk. I wanted to do something that was fun and exciting, but I needed to be around people. I needed, I needed that brotherhood and that camaraderie. And I found that in the fire department. And so one day I saw some fire trucks going down the road when I was, uh, when I was in high school. And I said, you know, I'm going to look into that. And then I did a ride along and I just saw how, Everybody just interacted with each other and just laughing and joking and having a great time. Yet they were they were serious when the call came out. And I said, you know what, this is for me, and uh, I just did it. I just pursued it, and, and I did it, and it was the uh, best career ever. And I had a great time. I, I would do it all over again. So, um, you say you grew up in uh, in the Bronx. At uh, what age did you end up in Florida? Right, we, I moved down as a teenager. And uh, moved down here because my parents moved down. We, we, you know, obviously I followed them. And then, uh, you know, it's just growing up in the Bronx is very difficult. It's just uh, back in the uh, 70s and 80s, it just wasn't a good place to, to grow up at. And uh, thank God my parents uh, moved us out of there. It just was not a good environment. But, uh, you know, I knew I had to make something of myself. Nobody was going to give you anything. And I just, you know you know, just took it and ran with it. And so it was, it was great. I use a lot of my Bronx experience when I go give lectures and speeches, and I try to incorporate that into it. And uh, because, you, you know, you never forget your childhood. It, it, it is who you are today, no matter what age you are. Can you, uh, would you mind sharing um, one of your most memorable experiences growing up in the Bronx, good or bad, something that, that shaped who you are? The thing about the, the Bronx and especially anywhere in New York City, but mainly in the Bronx where I grew up, everything is segregated in, in neighborhoods. And uh, in my neighborhood, there were, um, there, were, it, it, there were a lot of Italians and Irish people. And so the other neighborhood are Hispanics. Another neighborhood, there, there were African-Americans. And so everything was segregated pretty, pretty good up there. And, uh, and it still is like that today, probably not as much, but, uh, but it was like that back then. But yet we all went to the same school and I went to a Catholic school. I went to St. Raymond's and we all went to the same school. But yet after school, everybody went back into their neighborhoods and you dare not go into another neighborhood. You stayed in your neighborhood and it was didn't really understand it at the time. It's just how it was. And you, you didn't cross borders. You didn't cross the streets. You stayed in your neighborhood, which is, you know, four five, six block area. But yet. You go to school with those same people the next day and, and your best friends. And when you grow up in that environment, you just, you don't know any better. You think that's the way it is. So when we moved down to Florida, I realized like, wow, that's not the way things are supposed to be, but that's the way it was, you know, you know, growing up up there. So, you know, like I said, the seventies and eighties was, was pretty rough. You know, I would take the train, sometimes subway to school or uh, would take the bus to school. And when I, cause I actually started out going to a Catholic school, and, you know, the last year before we moved down, we went to a public school and, you know, I had to take the train and it was just different. But again, you don't, you don't know any better, but you know, I had a great time. It was a, it was a great, great time. 
So what did uh, what did your parents do for a living when you were growing up? My my mom did she didn't work, but my father he worked on Wall Street. He was a master tailor. He used to make uh, custom made suits for all the brokers. You know, all the brokers on Wall Street, and they would come into a store, and you had the measuring tape because my whole family's from Italy. My mom and dad, everybody's from Italy, so they came over on the boat. And my dad's father was a tailor, so that's what that's what he knew. So um, you know, he worked uh, two or three jobs, worked seven days a week. You know, he would come home, and you know, he would still hem pants for people, make dresses, make suits. He did that for for extra money back in the day. You know, it was uh, it was tough back in the day. You know, in the Bronx, and so you know, you had to do what you had to do, and then they realized, you know, we need to give our family a better life, and they moved us to Florida. Thank God. I don't know what I'd be doing up there right now if I was there. Do you have any? Uh, do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have. Um, I have a brother. I have a brother, a younger brother, and I have an older sister, and uh, and I have two. Uh, I'm sorry, I have three children. Uh, uh, my son Nick, he's an Orlando firefighter. And I have another son, Andrew, uh, he's a Marion County firefighter. And then I have uh, a daughter, she works at my buddy's car dealership. And so they're all, you know, in their twenties and they're doing great. And, you know, I've been married 28 years to a great wife, Claudia, and, uh, and everything's going great, man. I, <laughs> I got no complaints. <laughs> uh, I, I wanna uh, touch on your book now, but first what, what, struck me reading about you is that you progressed through the ranks rather quickly with Marion County. Right. And then you went to the city of Orlando and you chose not to promote. And right. I was just wondering um, right. what, what, uh, I don't know what your mindset was, yeah. what, and that's a pretty common question. A lot of people ask me about that. So I got hired with Marion County right out of high school. I was extremely, extremely young. And Marion County at the time in the 80s, it was a, it was a new fire department. It was a young fire department. It's kind of like what Orange County was back in the 80s. You know, we had a lot of volunteers initially, and then eventually it went all, it went all career. So we didn't really have any mentors to look up to. I mean, it was just you. And so they were given... Uh, a big promotional exam and because they were trying to get structured somehow. So I, I took the exam and, and I, and I did good on it and I got promoted to Lieutenant rather quickly. I think two years on the job, I was, I got promoted to, to Lieutenant. So I did that job for, I guess, a couple of years. And then I got promoted to a district commander, which uh, I guess Orange County equivalent to a, to a battalion chief or a district chief in Orlando. And so I did that for many, many years. And so I did that. And uh, fortunately, I had, a, I had a gentleman who retired from Orlando and he took me under his wing and he brought me along the ways, told me the, you know, the do's and the don'ts and such. But I did that for, for quite a few years and it was great. I mean, I had to learn as I was going along. I made, gosh, a bunch of stupid, stupid mistakes, bonehead moves. I was just young. I, I did not know any better. Because remember, I really didn't have any, any really great mentors. And what I realized, the longer that I did it, it became more administrative instead of tactical. Even though I was a you know, district command out in the street, it was starting to become more administrative. And I wasn't like it. I just, this isn't, this isn't for me. But in my heart, deep down, I've always wanted to work for a big city department, always since, since I was young. And I've always wanted to go to Orlando. And so fortunately, yeah, I was, uh, I took the test in Orlando and I got hired. So what I realized is that I did everything backwards. You're supposed to be a fireman for many, many years and you work up the ranks. That's why I put in my book, a timeline on how you should promote, you know, don't be so quick. Like a lot of these people are just so quick to promote. And I see these people promote to chief's ranks at 10 years on the job. Well, hell, they still got 15 years left before they retired and they're miserable. They're, they're most all of them that I've ever met were just absolutely miserable because they missed the they missed the guys at the station. They're not able to be one of the crew anymore because now it turns out to be more administrative. And that's what was that's what happened with me in, in my first department. I moved up so fast that I missed all of that. I, I just missed all of it. And I was yearning for it. 
And then when I had the opportunity to go to Orlando, I was like, you know what? I can finally become a, a real firefighter. I can do what I, what I wanted to, 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 to do. And I was eventually going to promote, but then I retired out. But it was great, though. I had a great time. I was on, a, I was on a, a tower truck most of my career, and then I was on an engine for a while before that and spent a little time on the rescue. But uh, I just, I, I, I just love being, being a firefighter, and I, I thought I could make a difference there. I just, you know, I, it wasn't, the timing was not right for me. But, I, again, I wouldn't change anything. I would, would not change anything at all. What uh, what stations did you spend most of your career at in Orlando? I worked at uh, most of my time was spent. Uh, I was at a few different places. I was at Station Two on Paramore when I first got hired. Then from there, I went to um, I went to Eight near the airport, and then I went downtown to Station One for a little bit, and then I ended up on uh, Tower Ten, uh, Station Ten across from Universal. And uh, I mean, I had a great time. There had a had a great crew, and it's just uh, you know never looked back. It was awesome. <laughs> what are some of your fondest memories growing up that that played a role in in shaping who you are? And yeah, well, let's let's start there. What are what are some of your fondest memories growing up with your family and all that stuff? Well, we had a we had a great family. You know, the family was pretty tight, old old school Italian family. You know, the holidays were great. Uh, you know, the Christmases and Thanksgivings and Easter's. You know, we 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 did a lot of that. Uh, you know, what I think what defined me is growing up. To be honest with you, there, there I spent a lot of time with a lot of assholes that were in the background, and I always knew I did not want to be like them. I, I saw how some of these people treated other people. And it was really bad. And, and I saw that as a young age, growing up in the Bronx and then up through my you know, teenage years into young, adult, young adulthood. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be like that guy because they're just not happy people. They're, they're poison, they're cancerous. And, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to really try not to be judgmental. And it's, it's hard. It's hard not to be judgmental. But I really strive to do that, especially as I got older and into more of my fire department career, um, because some of these people, they can really press you, believe me. And you try not to be judgmental. You try to be that, that good person. And uh, just over the years, that's what led me to, to write this book, because I, I took a lot of that and, and I saw a lot of the negativity in the fire department that I wanted to change. And it was hard changing it while you're there, because it's just different. It's just different while you're there. It's like when you retire, there's more credibility you have when you retire than when you're there because now the pie is only so big at the fire department. Everybody's competing for that same slice of the pie. But when you're retired, the pie is unlimited. And you can, I, I, I feel like I have a greater influence now being retired than, than when I was currently working. So, and I attribute a lot of that to, you know, what I saw growing up and when I saw at the firehouse. In your fire service career, who would you say was your uh, biggest mentor or somebody that had the biggest influence on your career? There was, there was never really one person, to be honest with you. And I, I wish there was, and, and, I, and I would tell you, um, there was never really one person. I had, the way I did it, I had several people that I looked up to based on, not based on their tactical knowledge, but based on how they treated other people. Because what I realized is that those people that had the greatest influence on me knew how to be great leaders. They were great officers. They were great firefighters. And it was because of how they treated people. It wasn't because of their knowledge on the job. See, what I tell everybody, you could train anybody to do our job. I mean, you could train a monkey to do my job. It wasn't that hard. It was not that hard to be a firefighter. It wasn't that hard to be a paramedic. The hard part was dealing with each other. That was the difficult part. You know, the things that I saw go around, uh, going around the firehouse, it was just not acceptable to me because we would preach this camaraderie, brotherhood, sisterhood, but there was a lot of hypocrisy there also. And that, that always bothered me. And it wasn't because these, some of these people were bad people. Most everybody I worked with, they were just great individuals and I, and I loved them to death. So I always looked up to that, that firefighter, that fire chief or whoever it was. I don't care. If it was a guy that was on the job for one day or 30 years, if he was a good person that tried to help somebody, 
that's who had an influence on me because that's who I wanted to try to be like. I didn't want to try to be like that cancerous, poisonous person in the background. And what I learned also is the loudest talker always wants everybody to think he's the smartest and knows everything about, you know, fire department tactics and strategy. But he said, I always found it was that good guy that had, that had everything, you know, that was just a good person, know how to treat people. He also had a lot of knowledge. So to me, you have to have all, the whole thing, not just one piece of it. What was the hardest challenge that you overcame in the fire service and, and how did you overcome that? The, rather the biggest, the biggest challenge that I had, and it, again, it just, it, everything led me to, to write this book. The, the biggest challenge that, that, that I had, I felt like everything was a competition, everything. And, and I understand that because you work with a bunch of guys and girls with type A personalities, you know, who can do the most push-ups, the most sit-ups, you know, who can climb up 30 flights of stairs the fastest on, you know, two breaths of air instead of going through 10 bottles. Um, I felt like everything was a competition and everybody was trying to compete with each other. That's good in a way because it makes you step up and it makes you try to reach higher. But if you're not careful, it can become very toxic and it, and it can lead to a very toxic atmosphere, a toxic firehouse. And uh, that always bothered me. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't like that. Most people were capable of doing the job. We had very, very few bad firefighters. Most everybody could do the job. They were great firefighters, great EMT paramedics. We just in the fire department liked great leaders. We have them. They're out there. And we had several of them. But the problem is a lot of, a lot of firefighters, we let our narcissistic behavior get in the way of good decision making because we either moved up too quick or now we were one of the guys and girls here. And now we're up here and we think we have total control over everybody. And I've seen a lot of good people get taken out that way. And you, you can't do that. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. What I learned early on, the higher you go, the more humble you have to be and the less you need to talk. Just do it based on your actions and people will recognize it. But we as firefighters, we tend to have to tell everybody how great we are. Because I really want you to believe me, Chief Dave, I'm the greatest firefighter of all time because I'm telling you. But yet, if I just sit back and keep my mouth shut, and when the tones go off, do my job, my actions should speak, you know, should speak volumes. And so that's, that's what I looked up. I always looked up to somebody that, uh, that was just a great leader and that was just really good to people. What is the most memorable moment you've had in the fire service? So like uh, a call wise or just, uh, man, that's like, <laughs> whew, there, there were a lot. I mean, there were a lot of memorable, the, there's, there's nothing specific that stands out. Uh, you know, there were certain things that have happened along my career, good and bad, that helped me grow along the way to help me see the, the, the clearer picture. So I said, you know, I wouldn't change anything, but I, I, I would change something. If I could go back in time when I was that young firefighter, that young officer, that young, you know, lieutenant captain, district commander, I would change uh, the maturity level. Um, I wish I was more mature. I would do things a little different. Um, early on, it was my way or, or, or the highway because that's what I saw. That's what I learned. And I thought that's the way it was. But I learned the hard way. That's not, that's not what you do. So when I go back and I think, you know, what was some of my more memorable experiences? It was probably getting in trouble when it was my fault, when I deserved it. Some of it I didn't deserve. But a lot of it I did. And so I, I just took those experiences with me over the, over the years. And I'm glad I did it early on in my career and not in Orlando. You know, probably my first couple of years in Orlando. But as time went on, things got better. I kind of knew, you know, how to play the game and how to, you know, talk less and listen more and just smile. <laughs> I got one more question. And then I want to I open up your book and touch on yeah. a few things. Um, can you tell me? A little bit about your personal philosophy on leadership and in general and counter to that or maybe complementing that you, your philosophy on leading in high stress environments right. particularly like on a fire scene or right. 
uh, traumatic event type of thing? I, number one, you have to let your you have to let your crew work. You got to let them do their job. The worst thing you can do to a crew is micromanage the hell out of them because we don't respond well to that. I know my job. I, I know my job. All right. Let me do my job. If you see me doing something stupid or dangerous or it's like, whoa, where did that come from? Yeah, then you need to reel me in. But I think an effective leader will let their crew do their job. All right. Quit telling the crew that you're the boss and it's going to be your way or the highway and just, you know, just be that good person. Don't screw with people. And that was the biggest thing that I saw a lot of officers do is that not only would they micromanage, they would just screw with people. And some of these individuals, and it wasn't so much in Orlando, and that's why I love Orlando so much, but we had a couple, two or three here and there that were just like, my gosh, how did this person become an officer? I think we all have those people. But I, I, I think an officer that, that can just step back, be a great person, just motivate and say, hey, great job, and treat everybody the same, everybody fair, to me, that that's a good leader. You don't need to tell me you're you're a good leader. I will be able to recognize that my, myself, just like you'll be able to recognize I'm a great firefighter. I don't have to tell you. And and I think a lot of a lot of a uh, lot of new officers they don't understand that they they don't. You know, we, we always have a saying in the fire department: he or she forgot where they came from, and that's so true. But that's because of pressure more from the top too. There's a tremendous amount of pressure from the top. Like I remember talking to my chief one time and he was a great guy. I love him to, to, to death. He treated me great. And I always picked his brain. And, uh, and I said, how's your job? And he's more, I've got a boss too. I answer to the mayor and the city manager every day. And you have absolutely no idea what goes on up here. Nobody does. And he's right. We, we, we don't. And so what happens is he's being pressured. Now he pressures the people under him. They pray and it just works its way down. And the person on the bottom is just compressed, whereas it's just choking the firefighters in the firehouse. And you got to let leave these people alone. Let these guys and girls work. Let them do their job. Don't screw with them. Don't manage by memo. Quit coming out with ridiculous rules and shooting at the hip and, and things will be fine. I remember every so often, you know, the chief would come down with an email saying, hey, you can't shop at Publix anymore. Why? Because one citizen would call the mayor. The city manager says, hey, why is my tax money paying for firefighters and a million-dollar fire truck shopping at Publix? And what do they do? They shut it down for a few days. Now, the union gets involved. This gets involved. And, and before you know it, all hell's breaking loose. Things settle down. Now we're back at Publix. And there's a, like a cycle. That would just happen all the time with all sorts of things. And uh, like I said, I was fortunate. We, we did have some great people in Orlando that, that I worked with that, that I looked up to. But, uh, you know, I, I wish... Uh, you can't teach somebody to be a leader. You just can't. They, they, they either have it or they don't. Um, you have to have the personality for it. What you can teach is the do's and the don'ts. You know, don't scream on the radio. Don't scream at your people. Don't put people down, et cetera. Yeah, you can teach that. But you have to have it in your heart to want to be a good person and try to help people. That's what makes a great leader in, in my mind. That That is the... The piece that you can't teach is that desire to put your people ahead of yourself. Right. And that I think that goes to your life coming up and and your your life's experiences and really learning, you know, how to be a good person. Right. And and here, here's a great example, Dave. You know. At dinner time, I worked with uh, I worked with quite a few officers. They would never take a plate until everybody else went first. They made sure there was enough food for the crew before they ate, and then they went and took a plate. And then they made sure everybody had seconds before they ate seconds. And on top of that, a lot of our chiefs, when they ate dinner with us, they would help with the dishes, which is great. Now, granted. We don't expect them to mop the floors. We don't expect them to wipe down the table. But you know what? They were in the kitchen with us doing the dishes, wiping it down and putting the dishes away. And people notice that. You don't have to showcase it. People will see that. But on the flip side, over the years, we had a couple officers that would just sit there and wait to be served. 
and that doesn't work. It, it, it doesn't work. They're the first ones in line, first ones up for seconds and thirds. And once they got done eating dinner, they would just go in their office, have a cup of coffee and left the crew alone. Again, people see that and that, that's not the way you, you want to be a leader. Fortunately, we did not have too many of those. But what's funny is that I talked to firefighters all over the country. Fire, you know, Fire Department USA is the same from Orlando, Miami, New York City to L.A., Chicago and everything in between. It's all the same everywhere. People say, oh, Orlando, you work for a great fire department. In my mind, it was the best fire department out there. All right. In your mind, Orange County was the best fire department out there. And it should be in, in, in our minds. But these problems aren't unique to Orlando, Marion County, Orange County. These, you've seen it yourself. These problems happen everywhere with leadership. And uh, the military has it, too. I've spoken to very high ranking officers and fighter pilots and generals. They have the same issues we do at the fire department with, with, with leadership. And all you can do is just moving on. It's not, it's not going to go away. All we can do is help mentor that next person coming up and just you know, make it a little bit better for the next guy. First, I want to ask you what your favorite part of this book is. <laughs> My favorite part? Man, I, uh, I really like, I like the part in there on, uh, how, on the leadership part on how to be a leader. I mean, I had a couple of people come up to me. They said, well, what do you know about being a leader? You were never an officer in Orlando. I said, that's what would make me the best leader ever is because I'm the outside looking in and I know what not to do. So therefore, I can consider myself the subject matter expert, not because I didn't do the position in Orlando, but because I saw what not to do. And, and this is what I wanted to share with a lot of future officers and even current officers. Plus, I held an officer role in the beginning of my career, and I made all those stupid mistakes that, that I definitely wrote about. So the leadership part in the book is a good one. Um, you know, there's another good part in there. It was... Uh, and almost everybody agreed with it. I, I listed different levels of, of people that you work with. You know, you've got the coworker, the friend, the true friend, and the, the scumbag sellout. And we have those. Oh, yeah. They're in every single fire department. And, and, and I wrote about that because as much as the fire department, yeah, it is a brotherhood, sisterhood, camaraderie. There's a very dark side to our occupation. And that's why I titled the book Surviving the Firehouse, because you have to survive it. It's not what the movies make it out to be. It is, but there's a dark side that we just don't deal with. You know, there's a lot of classes out there on how to be a leader. There's a lot of classes out there on how to put out fire, a lot of classes on how to start an IV. But you know what? You very, very, very rarely hear anybody talk about, hey, how do we mentor some of these young kids coming up? How do we mentor some guy that's on the job for two days. You very rarely hear about that. And that, that always bothered me. And that's one of the reasons why I, I wrote this. Yeah, this, I can't, I can't tell you enough that, I mean, as soon as I started reading it, I was like, holy crap. <laughs> this would have been awesome in the beginning. Yeah. Because it's like reading through it, some of the mistakes that you talk about, you know, the, the pitfalls of the career, they're, you know, without knowing this stuff, it's very right. common to, to slip in that, you know? Right. Well, this, this is what happened, Dave. You know, one, one day I was outside, it was in the morning, I was doing the morning checkoff on the truck and some guy comes driving by and uh, he floated in for the shift. So one of my coworkers said, hey, Porchell, you want to watch out for that guy? I said, why? He said, ah, he's lazy. He's a, he's a dirtbag. He's just not a good guy. He's just lazy and, you know, he, he doesn't cut it. I'm like, well, how long has he been on the job for? He's probably been on the job a year, maybe a year and a half. Young guy, probably 21, 22 years old. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I didn't think nothing of it. By the end of the shift, I'm like, you know what? There's nothing wrong with this guy. He was an awesome person. The, the problem was right here was the firefighters. That's where the problem was because nobody took this kid under their wing to mentor them, to tell them the do's and the don'ts that I wrote in that book. That was the problem. And that's our fault. I mean, we, I failed at it. We all failed at it, but yet we want to blame these young kids 
coming out of high school, you know, living in your mom and dad's basement. Now they graduated. Now we're putting them in this toxic environment called the firehouse, which is the best environment in the world. And now we want them to survive. And we want them to just know from day one, you know, you should be an expert at this. No, sleeping in a recliner at two o'clock in the afternoon when you're when not sleeping in a recliner at two o'clock in the afternoon is not common sense. Being not going to bed, being the first person to go to bed, you know, that's not common sense. We, we all like to think it is, well, I'm not his daddy. Well, he actually, you are his daddy. That is your job. Again, you can't preach camaraderie to me. And then on the flip side, throw this, you know, this kid under the bus because he's not doing it your way. Well, you know what? Why don't you tell him how to do it? Why don't you tell him, don't sleep in a recliner at two o'clock. Don't be the first person to bed. You know, make sure you're the first person to wake up in the morning. Make sure you're, you're in the kitchen, you know, studying your books at, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon instead of hanging out in the TV room with us. Because the way it works is if you have five, 10 guys watching TV at two o'clock in the afternoon, chances are this young kid that just got hired is going to be in there with you. All right. Chances are if you have six guys upstairs taking a nap mid-afternoon, this young kid is going to be like, okay, that's what's done. So I'm going to go do that too. So what happens is these kids, they, they ruin their career early on because we did not help them. We didn't help them. We didn't tell them, hey, man, I know you see us doing this. And I know it's not right, but the way it works in our world called the fire department and firehouse life is you don't want to do it because optics is everything. Optics is everything. And I would tell these kids, I'm like, hey, listen. And even the paramedics who said didn't work for us, that they, they would ride with us. I, I would tell them and say, hey, listen, I know this sounds weird. I know it doesn't make sense, but have your books all laid out on a dining room table. And just if you're not outside with the trucks, hang out in the dining room table. And that way people see you in there with your books all laid out because it's the optics. You know, it's just the way it, it's, it's done. And I know it's hard for you to understand that right now, but believe me, this is helping you out. And you'll thank me later on in your career. I saw a lot of great people. Their, their reputations got trashed early on and it wasn't their fault. Now, granted, there were a few. They deserved it because after you tell somebody something a few times and they still don't listen, we say, you know what? I can't help you because you're too freaking thick-headed and you're not paying attention. But most of the time, it wasn't their fault. It was our fault. And that's, that's why I wrote that. There was this, well, first, there's a quote that I... I really liked um, you. You quoted Chief Wayne Futch, right? Great guy. The son, there is no sense of arguing with an idiot in front of an audience because after a while, the people standing around won't know who the idiot is. <laughs> and like, how many times? <laughs> I can think back early on in my career arguing with somebody when I knew I was right. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, and trying to prove my point, but they just wouldn't get it. But then it started becoming like, well, who's the idiot? You're arguing with them. <laughs> exactly. The typical firehouse dinner environment. Yeah. Right. We all look like we all look like idiots. I did <laughs> many times because I was not backing down because damn it, I freaking knew I was right. And I'm going to say it louder and I'm going to throw some curse words in there because I'm going to convince you that I'm right. And that's what we do. Then it goes back and forth. And unfortunately, the tones will go off. We run a call. Everything is neutralized. When you get back, we weren't intelligent enough to know what we were arguing about. And we come up with something else that's stupid. <laughs> so this uh, complain or remain silent, choose your battles. Right. Chapter that one. I can tell you, I wish I had had that. Uh, you know, there's always a point in time when the the contract is, you know, taking forever. You haven't had raises. Everybody's kind of, you know, there's some knee jerk policy that comes out or whatever it is. It can affect the the morale at the station let's say morale right um, but it can it can affect people's attitudes and there can be some negativity right and um when i was a lieutenant 
I, I was in my office. Um, it was after, you know, checkout and, um, you know, I had done the teleconferences and I was sitting in my office getting together my training plan for the day and uh, just, you know, taking care of some, you know, morning stuff. And I could hear the guys in the kitchen. They had already, like, checked out all the apparatus and cleaned and all that. And they were <clears throat> in the kitchen and I could hear them. And they were, they were complaining and just bitching and, and, uh, I'm, I'm going, man, they sound miserable. This is like, and in my mind, like I was in a good mood, right? So had all these great training plans for the day, like, oh yeah, this is going to be great. And then I'm hearing them and I'm like, wow, you know, like what, what's going on? And right. then I started paying attention to what they were saying. And I realized that a lot of the stuff they were saying was stuff that I had said myself. Right. Right. And man, what a kick in the gut that was. Right. So I went in, went into the kitchen, sat down. We all were talking. I was like, hey, listen, I realized that I've been fairly negative the last several weeks. And I want to, I want to stop that, you know? And I think it would be a lot easier for me if we all tried to do it together. Right. I think I've got a plan. If there's an issue and we have a solution and we're willing to, to implement that solution, then let's talk about it. Right. But if there's an issue and we can't see a solution and we're not really willing to implement anything to, to make that change, then let's not even talk about it because right. it's not going to serve any purpose. And over the next several weeks, the, the tone changed. And right. It, it served a purpose and, and it actually energized us to actually get more involved and, and make some changes. Right. Right. And, uh, and so I, I feel like that part, of your book, uh, that that spoke to me, and um, I, I felt like that little piece of wisdom there could have could have saved me face a bunch of times. Yeah, a lot of us, <laughs> a lot of us, because I mean, negativity. I mean, sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's funny, but not twenty four seven. And that's the issue. And, and what I always try to tell the young guy, I never told the old guys because they wouldn't listen anyway. But what I try to tell these young kids coming up is like, we can't control what comes from the mayor's office. We can't control what comes from you know, the chief's office. I mean, I truly believe most all of our chiefs had our, our best interests in mind. I, I really do. I mean, sometimes I've implemented things that are kind of questionable, but I truly believe they wanted the best for the department and best for, for the troops in the field. But we as firefighters, we try to control everything from the top down, bottom up. And what happens is it just creates this toxic atmosphere, this toxic environment. And now everybody becomes totally disgruntled and it's just not a fun place to work. It's okay once in a while to just talk about, ah, you know, the mayor screwed us. We didn't get our raise, blah, blah, blah. The union screwed us, this and that, and et cetera. And I love my union. Union was great. But what I always told everybody is, if you've got a problem with the union, with the chief, wherever, pull them aside individually. Don't do it in the group. I, I love my union. We had great union leadership. And I didn't agree with everything that they did. But when I didn't, I would pull the union leadership aside, just one-on-one -on -one when nobody was around. I said, hey, what were you thinking? How did you come up with this? And what I come to find out, find out most of the time was, you know what? I never looked at it that way. And that's why when, I lo always loved it when the chiefs would come around. I'm not just talking about our district chief, but the top one or two guys when they would come around because I would pull them aside and, and you know, any rumors that, that went on, I would, hey, is this true? Like, hey, Portia, where the heck did you get that from? Like, man, from these guys. Like, they're idiots. Don't listen to them. 
That's not what happened. <laughs> and so you really got have to control that. You know, that's why I always loved it when the Chiefs would come around. And uh, they didn't come around that often, but I wish they, they would come around. But you have to be careful with, with the toxicity around the firehouse. But it starts as, with you as a leader because you control that. You control the atmosphere at your firehouse. And the thing with Orlando, and just like Orange County, we're extremely busy, extremely, extremely busy. You know, not just with calls. But we had to do inspect, not only we had to check off the trucks, clean the station, we had to do inspections, we had to do hydrants, we had to go to day training, we had to go to night training, run calls all in between. That's fine. But what would happen was sometimes we would have officers, all right, let's load up, let's go do this. Now we come back, let's load up, let's go do that. My frame of mind is let's do all the BS stuff in the morning, get it out of the way. And after 12 o'clock, it's your time. You want to go study? You want to do whatever? It's, it's your time. All right, now we get ready to go to night training because we have to go go to training. And so there's, there's definitely a balance there. But you've got to be careful whining and, and bitching a lot because what happens is with that one individual that all he did or she did was bitch and whine and complain. Once they had a, a, legitimate, a legitimate complaint, nobody took them seriously. It was like the boy that cried wolf. It's like, well, all this freaking person does is bitching, crying, and complain anyways. So one of the things that I learned early on in my career, I'm sorry, later in my career, was that pick your battles. Choose them wisely because now when you do bring it up to your supervisor or to your chief, he's going to listen to you. He's like, oh, man, Porcelli's saying this. You know, I may want to listen. Like, granted, it didn't always happen that way. <laughs> but they were more likely to listen to you than to not listen to you. The union is more likely to listen to an employee that they don't even know exists rather than to that one employee that's always typing the union an email, bitching and complaining about everything. And that's what I try to share with these, with these younger guys coming up. It's like, you know, talk less, ears open. If something's really bothering you, evaluate it. Do not freaking send out an email to everybody and then pull your officer aside, your lieutenant, your chief, and then talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. But don't be a... Uh, you know, don't be a constant whiner all day. It's just, it's very poisonous to the crew, but it starts with you. It starts with the officer. Everything starts with the officer. We can only do so much as blue shirts because when we don't have the support from the guy above us, I mean, it doesn't matter. It has to come from the officer. If you could do anything to improve the fire service in America, what, what would you do? What would I do? I would let these guys and girls work. Let them do their job. Let them freaking do what they do best. Quit trying to micromanage them. Quit coming down the pipe with all these rules and regulations. We know what the rules are. Yeah, we do break them. Okay, I get that. And when we break them, you can slap me. But quit breathing down my neck. The, the, the problem that I see with, with, with a lot of officers and a lot of different departments, once either they get promoted, they try to reinvent the wheel or somebody that is trying to get promoted, they're throwing everybody else under the bus to make themselves look good. So if I could change anything in, in the fire department, the one thing I would change the, the hypocrisy. There's a lot of hypocrisy in the fire department. If you're gonna call this organization a brotherhood and sisterhood, then damn it, live by it. Don't freaking throw this guy or girl under the bus for your political gain. So you can get that truck assignment, that heavy rescue assignment, that station assignment. That ain't what this is about. You just talked to me about brotherhood camaraderie five minutes ago, and now you're throwing this person under the bus because he's not living up to your expectations. Well, who are you? Who are you? What did you do to help this person to live up to your expectations? Nothing. You tried to trash them, all right? And it happened all the time. You tried, and, and, all, and all, not just my fire department, all fire department. I'm talking about fire department USA. It happens everywhere, and, and that's just wrong. And so if I could change something, it would be to change the hypocrisy. It wouldn't be to change the chiefs, the mayors, whatever. You know, that is what it is, a whole separate, that's a whole separate Pandora's box right there. All right. Because there are a lot of great fire chief, chiefs and a lot of great leaders. And I, and I was fortunate to work for a lot of them. But it starts at the firehouse. That's what I would change, the firehouse atmosphere. And uh, just helping people out, just mentoring them. Helping that person out that's this close to getting fired and bring them back off the brink and don't judge them. Find out what's bothering them, build them up, and you, you'll be surprised if you take this raw coal 
and put enough pressure on it equally and smooth out the rough edges, you're going to end up with a beautiful diamond. I've, I've seen it many times, but it's not easy to do, but it can be done. That's what we're missing. I like how you, know, you, you wrap up the book talking about legacy. And uh, I was thinking this would be a good point in our conversation where you could talk a little bit about legacy and, and what that means to you. Right. You know, there's only, I can't control what you think about me. I, I can only control my actions and maybe try to be that person that, that you want me to be. So to me, legacy is the, nobody will ever tell you you are a great firefighter. It just doesn't happen in our line of work. You know, maybe once in a while, somebody say, hey, you're a good fireman, you know, thank you. But it's rare that somebody says that. It's even rare that somebody says you were a great firefighter. So the only thing I really cared about in my career, especially towards the end, especially now that I'm retired, is all I ever wanted him to think was, hey, Porcelli was a good firefighter and it was a great guy. That's it. Because I can control that. I can control that. You know, nobody ever told me I was a great guy. Nobody ever told me I was a good firefighter, but they never told me the opposite. So it must be true. So again, that's the way I think about legacy is just be a, be a good firefighter. Just try to be a good person. Because what I learned later on in my career and I didn't know this earlier, is that when I was young in my career, I, I was like, my gosh, how did this place exist without me? And you know what? They're not going to want me to retire because they're not going to be able to go on. Well, when I left, somebody was right there to take my place. And it's like I was never there. And the longer you're gone, the more separated you are from it. So one of the things that makes me feel really, really good, my son, Nick, that works for Orlando, and my son, Andrew, that works for, for Marion County, especially my son, Nick, when he says, hey, so-and-so said hello. He asked how you were doing. And to me, that means volumes. I, I cannot tell you how much that means to me because somebody is thinking about me and is wondering how I'm doing. And I don't need these people to call me every day. I don't even need them to ever call me. But for them to tell my son, hey, tell your dad I said hello, that means a lot. So to me, that means I treated that person right. I didn't do them wrong. I treated them right. And you know what? I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish with my legacy. And that, that's what's, what's important to me. Because at the end of the day, they're not building statues of us in front of Station One and pay homage to the great firefighter that used to work here that's not retired. It doesn't work like that, right? So all we can do is just try to be good people, be a good firefighter. And when you leave, They'll say, yeah, I remember that guy. He was a good fireman. He was a great guy. And I'm happy with that. <laughs> the other part of your book that um, I thought was pretty cool, you, know, you put recipes in there yeah. for the, the young firefighter that doesn't know how to cook anything. And um, really, people that, you know, have never worked in, in a fire station or been exposed to it they don't know the power of the dining room table right that's where all the world's problems are solved oh, yeah. that that's where the family that's where the family comes together and like some of the funniest conversations some of the some of the most emotional conversations happen right. at that table and when you can be the one that makes this meal that everybody enjoys, you know, it's, it's a good feeling. And especially when you get the pat on the back or when there's no leftovers. Yeah, they ain't gonna tell you it was the best meal ever. They're gonna tell yeah. you how much it sucks, but they're yeah. going back for thirds and fourths. And then yeah. there's no leftovers. Did you sit back like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, no, we, I mean, my firehouse, we actually did solve all of the world's problems at our kitchen table, just that nobody listened to us. <laughs> I love to cook. I was one of the main cooks at the fire department. I, I, I love to cook and I had a lot of helpers and, you know, I always had a lot of chiefs come in and cook and I was always known as the guy that would break the budget. Well, these freaking guys have been paying $5 a meal since 1965. All right. Yeah. Now, here we are in 2021, they still want to pay $5, and they still think they should get the fireman discount on top of that. 
So infl inflation took hold over the years. Well, these guys want these fancy meals for me, you know, with, with my pasta sauce. And I would make a, a homemade pasta sauce with bruschetta bread. I made some good stuff. And, and there's a lot to it. But yet they didn't want to pay more than $5. But too bad. I made them pay $5. And so I love doing the cooking. I, I really did. And there was a couple of reasons behind it. Number one, I knew it was going to be good. And some of these guys, you truly don't want them to cook because they suck. All right. So I did, you know, I did enjoy the cooking and I did have a lot of help. But one of the main reasons I put the recipe section in the back of the book, because what would really piss me off is that some of these firefighters, especially the young ones, they wouldn't cook. And they would say, oh, you don't want me. To, you don't want me to cook, but I'll help you. You don't want me to cook. Well, sometimes I did want to cook and they would cook. Well, you saying that, oh, you don't want me to cook is just code for you're just too freaking lazy and don't want to cook. That's what it is. But yet everybody knows how to cook one or two things. Everybody does. I don't care who you are. And so for that guy, a girl that truly, truly does not know how to cook, all right? Well, I got some basic recipes in there and it'll make any fire department meal great. And then once you learn the basic recipes, you can, you can build on that. But uh, no, food is, food is very, very important. At the, at the firehouse, which, which, you know, I mean, we ate like, man, we ate like animals. It was incredible, you know, <laughs> breakfast, lunches and dinners. And it was, it was, it was good. And then we would fight it out around the table and solve the world's problems. Cause we we're all geniuses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, it's amazing to me. Uh, and I think anybody that reads your book is going to agree that, uh, especially those that, have been in the fire service for a while, like you cover everything. There, there isn't anything left out. You know, like I, I've read a lot of books. I'm very well read, but nobody does as good a job as you talking about how to survive the firehouse. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> no, man, I, I, this is, um, I, I think I already put it on my reading list. I, I might not have, but, uh, I'm going to check. Well, Chief, a lot of those were my mistakes. I didn't just come up with this because I thought I was greater than now. No, believe me. Most of those in there were my personal disasters over 25 years that I knew I had to put down. And what was funny, I catch, I, I catch shit from the firefighters all the time. Oh, Porcelli, you were the worst rookie ever. You were the worst fireman ever. Yeah, you wrote a book on how to be the best rookie, the best firefighter, the best leader ever. I'm like, no, I'm just smarter than you. Because I didn't write write down anything that you didn't know. I was just a guy smart enough to put it down. All right, I just did it before you. <laughs> then they raw, they go back and forth. All right, you suck this and that, and we all get a good we all get a good laugh out of it. And so, and it, it, you know, it, it's been great. It's it's been it's been really good. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that that I talk about, um, well, what actually led to the title of my podcast from embers to excellence is that, you know, all of the best lessons that we learn in our lives come from falling on our face, making right. those mistakes, looking like a fool, you know, like just that, that sting, that, that internal pain that you feel of embarrassment, like, man, I should have known better than to do that. I'll never do that again. Right. But that is that if you have the mindset to take that failure and turn it into to something good, to turn it into something that'll make somebody else better, then you're you're on the right track, you know? Right. And and that experience isn't lost. Right. So yeah, man, it, uh, it's awesome. I um, I'm that so was thankful. I had to put a lot of stuff in there that when people read it, like, oh yeah, that's definitely Porcelli. He definitely screwed that up. That, that's <laughs> but you know, what am I going to write a book on? How to VES? How to pop a door in an extrication? You know, how to do a four to one? You know, police system. Like, there's a lot of books on that. There need I. I needed to save somebody's job. This is the whole premise. And, you know, I can't help anybody anymore 
in the fire department, like to save a life or go on medical calls because I don't do that anymore. But if I could help some young kid in his career, especially early on to save his reputation, if I could save his job, um, if I could help some young officer, you know, along the way before he self-destructs and it's, it's worth it to me. But what, what gives me a, a lot of, uh, you know, just a lot of pride and uh, just, just happiness, just a lot of happiness is when a total stranger from halfway around the world or the country just emails me and says, sir, I just want to thank you for everything. This really helped me out. And it brings a tear to my eye. I'm like, you know, I don't even know this person, but I just helped out this young kid and guy, girl, whoever it was. And they said, thank you. And you know what? To me, that that's just that's just worth it right there. It's just, it's just worth it. And uh, yeah, I've been very blessed by that. And that's, that's something I ever really wanted from the book is just to help somebody out. I don't need all the accolades that come with it. And it is nice. I'm going to be honest. It is nice doing these interviews, giving lectures. I mean, you know, that's all nice. But when that young kid emails you or they meet you in person and say, hey, you're Mauro Porcelli. Thank you so much. Like, oh, my gosh. No. And I say, did I help you? He goes, you have no idea. Like, man, thank you so much. You know, then I feel guilty because he had to buy the book. I would just give it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, aside from the fire service. What's the most important thing that you've learned in your life? And what's your life been like since learning it? The, the most important thing is respect. I mean, it all revolves around respect. You have to have respect for each other. I mean, you look at what's going on in our country today. I mean, you and I, we work with blacks, whites, Hispanics, liberals, conservatives, people they don't know what they are. We work with all sorts of people. And there's no respect anymore it seems like with politics and and gender issues and sexual harassment issues and this and that people don't respect anybody anymore and you know i wish we could somehow bring bring that back um where we could respect each other more respect each other's opinions more because especially the last several years with, with politics i mean firefighters or losing other firefighters as friends because of political differences. That never happened, Chief, when, yeah. when you and I were coming up. That never happened. You had your differences. You bitched and griped around the dining room, the kitchen table, but it didn't matter. You still loved each other. But now, there's literally firefighters, they're going off into their corners, and they don't even talk to each other during the day because of political differences. They're letting politics control their lives. And, you know, if I could change something, it would it would just be, you know, respect for each other. It would just be respect and just have more respect for each other. You know, blacks, whites, Hispanics, gay, transgender, female, the whole I'm putting the whole thing in the melting pot. And I wrote about that and I got a chapter on that. I put the whole thing in there and we just we just have that respect for each other. And I feel like that we've lost that in in the fire department, unfortunately. And, and, And it's and it's sad. Yeah, I agree. Is there anything that um, is there anything that we didn't touch on that that you believe is important that uh, that we talk about before uh, before we wrap this up? I, I just have to reaffirm to all your listeners, you and the listeners and, and your audience out there, is that give that young person a chance. Just give that young person a chance. They may not be cutting it because of you, all right, because of you. You have to mentor these young kids coming up. We're taking them from the streets of the Bronx, throwing them into a firehouse environment with a bunch of type A personalities, and and these expectations are through the roof, and we want perfection out of them. And if we don't get it, we, we, you know, rough them up and spit them out, and we ruin their reputations. And my biggest takeaway from my book from this interview is I want your listeners to take that young person that's having trouble and there's many of them out there take them under your wing it's going to be tough it ain't going to be easy the person's probably already disgruntled because they're poisoned but they're still salvageable 
99.99999% of the firefighters out there, they truly want to do a good job. They really, really do. They really do. And we just don't give them enough of the tools to do it because we're not teaching them. We're not mentoring them. And like I said, we, we talk about leadership all the time in the fire department, and that's great. But you know what? What about that young person? What about leading that young person? And that's where, that's where it starts. And I've just seen too many people not make it in the fire department. They just quit and did another, another occupation. And that's just sad. So that's the takeaway that I want from this and want to just tell everybody, you know who that person is in your firehouse or in your department. And you, you know they're on the brink of, you know, being written up, being transferred, being fired. You've got to bring them back. And you can bring 99% of those people back if you just do your job as a leader, as a firefighter, you don't even have to be an officer, just do your job as a good person and help them out. And you, you will get more satisfaction out of that in your career, knowing that you helped one or two of these kids off the brink, than you will running calls to save people's lives because you're helping one of your own right now. I really appreciate you agreeing to let me interview you and thank you for, for writing this book. Um, you know, for for all the people listening, if you're if you're interested in becoming a firefighter, if you're in the fire service, if you're a young firefighter, you need to buy this book. It's going to help you. Um, and I, I think there's some leadership lessons in this for even uh, fire officers and chief officers. Just you know, the expectation of, of the firefighter on the street for you, you know, those, those firefighters that you're leading have an expectation of, of your role, how, how you lead them. And, and I think this does a, a good job of, of outlining that. And it can, I think, can help those people in leadership positions be better in their role, you know, putting, Putting the firefighter first. Yeah. Uh, man, thank you so much. Hi, uh, Chief. Thanks for having me, buddy. I, I really appreciate it. It's also available in audiobooks. What I learned along the way is a lot of these young kids, they don't read books, they, they listen to audiobooks. I'm like, okay, so we did an audiobook and, and it, um, it, it does great. But no, I, I can't thank you enough for having me on and you know, reaching out to me and uh, you know, it means a lot to me because it shows me that you're trying to help out people as well. And, you know, you have on different guests and everybody brings something different to your podcast. And, uh, you know, hopefully I helped you out and I helped out, you know, some of the guys and girls out there listening. But again, you don't know how much I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Um, so do you have a, a website that people can go to and, and see, you know, your offerings? Yeah. What? Uh, so the book sells in... Um, 70 countries and 60 distributors so you can get it on amazon uh google apple uh audible if you have if you like audiobooks it's on it's on audible so whatever platform you let you you use uh, it's even on an e-reader it's available to you if you do want a personal autograph copy just go ahead and email me at survivingthefirehouse at gmail.com and just shoot me a message, and then I can I can send you a book that way too. Um, if you're a chief of a department, chief of training, uh, uh, what we do, we ship out tons of books all around the country. We ship them out in, in big boxes, and what they do, they give them to their new hires. Um, and it, and it's been a pretty successful program because what these departments have realized, it's a lot cheaper for me to buy a twelve dollar book than it is to spend fifty thousand dollars to fire a guy and then hire somebody else. So. I've gotten a lot of feedback from, uh, from a lot of fire chiefs across the country and training divisions that they're giving these books to all the new hires. Now, they may not agree with everything that's in there, but that's okay. They know that, you know, this is going to help out their, 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 their young new hire. Yeah, cool, man. So if I don't already have it up on my website, I, I have a, uh, uh, recommended books page on my website at hollenbachleadership.com and I will have uh, links to it on there as well. I appreciate it. Thank uh, you. <laughs> yes, sir.